Well, this is week six of our sermon series entitled Ecclesia. Ecclesia is, this is a uh, transliteration of the Greek word that's used in the New Testament for church. So this is a sermon series on what it means to be the church. It was our hope as we walked through the series for you to be able to understand and understand a definition of what a church is supposed to look like, what a church is supposed to be about. In fact, I introduced this sermon series by first giving you a quick history of what it took to become the Mission Church. I told you about how my wife, Laura, and I had served at a church in the western suburbs of Chicago. I was a pastor for seven years at the Compass Church out in the western suburbs there. We got a handful of Compass students and a team with us today helping us for kids camp. We were feeling led to be missionaries somewhere, trying to decide, Lord, what do you want us to do? We prayed with the people, the leadership, the pastors, and and the people at that church, and God put it on our hearts to move to Utah and to plant a church. Come on out here. That's what we did. Came on out here, and our first gathering together in our living room with just a handful of couples was in February of 2014. And in the first week of this sermon series, I kind of gave you the parts and pieces when we started meeting and when we first uh, started, when we first had a plurality of elders, more than just one pastor at, at the church there, when we began meeting in a building, when we incorporated and officially became a legal 501c3 nonprofit corporation in Utah. We talked about what, when we added membership at a church, when we got into a physical building and all these things. And I asked the question, when did the mission church become a church? See, there was a point in which we weren't a church. It was Rich and Laura and people at the Compass Church thinking and having an idea and in our hearts a desire to do this. And today I believe we are a church, a local church, a local particular expression of the universal church that exists all times, all places, all believers. So when was it we became a church? And my reason for asking that question was not primarily that you had a history in mind, that you'd have a date. But the reason I wanted to propose that question is because I think it would be really helpful for you to know what the New Testament says that a church is so that when you are someday looking for a gospel-breathing, Christ-exalting church, you'll know what you're looking for. We have a lot of young people here with us today. You are very, very unlikely to remain at the church you are right now over the course of the next decade. There's lots of life changes that are going to happen. You're going to move to new places. You're going to go off to college someplace. You're going to have to find a good church there. You're, maybe you're going to get married and you're going to have to find, find a place to, to attend together, you and your spouse. Many different reasons you may have to find a good church. How are you going to determine what local church to be a part of? That's what we really want for you to be able to do. We started this series, we're about six weeks in, and I announced yes, last week that we, we've known from the beginning that we're going to have to do a part two, a sequel, let's say, to Ecclesia later in the fall. We're going to return back after we've had some time in Hebrews for a bit, just to try to continue to flesh out what it means to be the church. But here was a definition that I offered up for you to consider the first week. I'm going to put it up here again of what a local church is. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gathers in Christ's name around worship, prayer, the ordinances, and the preaching of God's word, and organize life together as the family of God. 
We've covered many of these pieces throughout this series to try to explain what they are. Today we're going to be talking about the second ordinance of the church, which is communion. But if I were to if I were pressed to answer the question, Rich, when do you think the Mission Church became a church? The honest answer is I'd say I don't know exactly. And it should be said that a church does not have to be perfect before it can be called a church any more than a Christian has to be perfect before he or she can be called a Christian. Nevertheless, I think there are some things that the New Testament tells us we ought to have in order to consider ourselves a church. And I suspect that we became a local church the first time that we took communion together. What I want to do today for you is I want to try to explain why I believe that communion is an essential part of a Christian church. So the the flow today is to explain what communion is and how we should observe it. And then we're going to take communion together. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. We're going to go back to the beginning of New Testament communion. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, I'm going to throw up the verse on the slide so you can follow along. I'm going to read this verse out loud, or this passage out loud. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive on in, trying to answer what is communion and how do we observe it. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I believe that communion is an essential part of a Christian church. I believe it's a command of our Savior to participate in it regularly. And Lord, I believe that the New Testament gives us direction on how we ought to do that. But Lord... We need your guidance through your teaching, your word, in order for that to ring true and to to drive home for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you prevent me from error in anything that I say today. Help us to to see your word as authority more than any opinion. Lord, help me as a pastor to be true, clear, and helpful as we walk through these passages this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a famous passage in the New Testament. Because it tells us of what we call the institution of the Lord's Supper. In fact, I would find it likely that in your Bible right now, at the top little heading that wasn't in there in the original text, but is something that we put in there as a kind of a heading, a subheading of what that little paragraph or few paragraphs is about. In my Bible here, it says institution of the Lord's Supper. I'd be willing to bet that that probably is likely for yours as well. This passage tells us about the last supper. The last supper the final Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. Being that this is the Last Supper, it's a part of Passover, not everything described here is prescriptive for how you and I take communion today. Jesus only had it one time with his disciples. He probably had the Passover meal three times, but this particular way they, they, they practiced it together, he only had it with them once. We're supposed to have it regularly. Lamb would have been part of the meal that they would have had here. We haven't had that today. This took place in an upper room that was on loan from somebody else who wasn't even one of the disciples, and I don't think that's prescriptive. But there are patterns 
that are laid out in this Last Supper that the church later utilizes as instruction to model when we take communion together. This is the foundation for our Christian practice of communion. And Jesus himself institutes this practice just like baptism. But contrary to baptism, it is Jesus who tells us exactly what the symbols represent. He tells us that the symbol of the bread points to his body and that the cup points to his blood. That means that when we take communion, we are acknowledging that Jesus lived. He had life. He had a body. And that he gave that life. He broke himself. And yes, he turned himself over to others for the breaking. But it was his willful act to be broken. He didn't hand the bread to someone else. They break this for me. He did it. He broke the bread and handed it to others. That the cup represents his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And not only does it represent the death of one man for people that he loves, but Jesus' death was the start of a new covenant. A new covenant, a promise between God and his people. So you might ask, okay, Jesus instituted it here. He gave it to his disciples to participate in, to practice. But what is the purpose of this supper? Why should we take it? Last week, I showed you that baptism illustrates at least three things, biblically. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why today we did baptisms. They were laid down by someone else. You don't baptize yourself, just like you don't bury yourself after you die. Someone else lays you down into the waters of baptism as though you were being buried and then brought back to newness of life. That's the dominant illustration in the New Testament of baptism. It also illustrates the inclusion into the body of Christ. We are baptized into one body, the Bible tells us. And it also is an illustration of the washing away of sins. So we see at least three illustrations taking place at the same time in the same activity. Similarly, communion is representative of more than just one thing. In fact, Christians throughout history have referred to this ordinance in different ways. So I want to actually put up today seven different words or phrases that Christians through history have used to describe communion. I bet you, many of you will be familiar with some of, if not most of these. I hope that this will be a helpful way to kind of explain what it is we're acknowledging when we take communion together. So here are seven words or phrases associated with the ceremony that we're about to participate in today. The first is sacrament. Communion is a sacrament. The word sacrament finds its origin in the Greek word for mystery or a sacred thing. In other words, there's something mysterious about the way that we view and think and see these elements. So Jesus didn't go, see this bread, it's bread. See this cup, it's just a cup. But he's symbolizing something super significant with these things, and it's sacred to us. Throughout the history of the church, it's been a dominant term to describe communion as a sacrament. It's a sacrament. It's a sacred ceremony. It's mysterious. It is holy. As a people who are called holy, set apart from the world, we have a meal that is likewise set apart. It is holy and unique. It is also an ordinance. An 
ordinance. This just means that it was ordered or ordained by Jesus. Jesus commanded that we would do this. It was a particular ceremony that he commanded. So there were lots of things that Jesus commanded for us to do that we don't consider a ceremony. Brotherly love is a command, but we don't have a ceremony for brotherly love. We do have a ceremony for baptism, and we have a ceremony for the Lord's Supper. It's an ordinance. It's ordained by Jesus. Now, historically, the Roman Catholic Church, the dominant expression of Christianity in the West over the course of the first 1,500 years of church history, began to start adding other sacraments to what they thought were a critical part of Christian life until they had seven. They had seven sacraments. During the Reformation, where people protested many of the teachings of the Catholic Church and said, we're, we're protesting, we're Protestants, separating out from that, began to feel uncomfortable with the language sacraments and adopted, as we do today, the language of ordinance. So we typically refer to baptism and communion as ordinances. It's a way to distinguish between the way the Roman Catholic Church had long viewed those things and the way that we view them today. They're, they're ordered by Christ. We look in the Bible, we see there are two, not more than that, two specifically ordered ceremonies to be participated in in the church. It's an ordinance. It's also called the Eucharist. The Eucharist. Now, this is dominant in the Roman Catholic Church. They still call it the Eucharist. But the reason that it's called the Eucharist and even Christian churches today could call it Eucharist if they wanted. It's because it finds its origin in the Greek term used in Mark 14 to 23, actually also Matthew 26, which means thanksgiving. That's what Eucharist means, thanksgiving, giving thanks. It's a gratitude expressed. Jesus, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, it says, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. So it's a, it's a meal of thanksgiving. That's why people call it that. It's a time where we present our gratitude for what the bread represents. Jesus gave thanks for the bread. We likewise give thanks for the ultimate bread. When we have communion together, we're thanking God. We're proclaiming gratitude to the Lord for what Jesus did that these pieces represent. So it's a sacrament, it's ordinance, Eucharist, and then it's Thanksgiving, and it's a meal of remembrance. It's a meal of remembrance. Jesus said in Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, and he took bread, or it says about Jesus, he took bread when he had given thanks, that's the same Eucharist word, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance. Why do we celebrate birthdays? Why do we celebrate anniversaries? Because they're worth remembering. They point to notable occasions. There is nothing more significant than what Jesus did for us on the cross in his death. He does not want us to forget or to forsake what went down. You know, throughout the whole Bible, God is really concerned for his people that we remember the good things that he's done for us. Over and over and over again, we're told to remember, remember what God had done. Remember it and tell it to your kids. Multiply that throughout the generations. When God does something mighty, the world will see it and remember who this great God is. In fact, God even gave specific holidays to his people, built it into the nation of Israel and said, these holidays, holy days, will help you remember important things that I've done for you in the past. 
When Jesus gives us communion, the Lord's Supper here, he tells his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. A quick line for understanding something here. He had not yet died when he had given this to his disciples. There was nothing to remember for the first 12 who sat with him because he's right there with them. This is why believers throughout history have seen this as a clear command to the rest of the believers who will ever read this text and know that it's for us to participate in it. That it wasn't just for those 12. He doesn't say, this is why you're doing this now, but do this, the ongoing continuation, in remembrance of my death and resurrection, which will take place tomorrow. Tomorrow, death, resurrection, three days later. It's for us to remember this is a critical part of the way we take communion. I'm not sure if at the Compass Church they still have that table. There, there was, a, there was a, a communion table. It was like, I think, the original communion table at the church. It just says on the front, like in, in a carved letters, do this in remembrance of me. It's from this exact verse. I, I bet you it's somewhere in that building somewhere. Because Christians remember when we come to the table, we can't be rightly taking a communion unless we're remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. So we, are, we call it a sacrament, an ordinance. It is the Eucharist, a meal of thanksgiving. It's a meal of remembrance, and it is also in the New Testament called the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Acts 2.42 says about the first believers and the first church gathering. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Breaking of bread. This is significance to us because we want these elements to be tangible. In other words, Jesus didn't tell us just to get together in a room and just imagine his body. Just, just remember, close your eyes and, and everybody think together, but he gave us something to put in our hands. We've got people right now dealing with our kids in the other room trying to teach them true things about Jesus and, and they find all the time that it's helpful to give them a tangible something to hold on to, to see and to feel and so they can engage with it a little bit better. In much the same way, God gives to his children tangible things to help us identify with and illustrate these really critical features of our salvation. It is tangible. We, it's really real. In fact, we're going we're gonna to have communion in a little bit together, and you're going to take these elements and take them back to your seat, and we're going to take them together. And the little piece of bread that you're going to hold is just as real as Jesus' body was here on earth. It was actually here. He actually lived meaningful for us. It's not just a mythology. It's not just a story. It's not just something that comes to our mind and imagination. That Jesus broke bread. We call it the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's also called the Lord's table. The Lord's table. That's why we refer to it as the Lord's supper because the New Testament refers to it as the table of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 10, 21, Paul is dealing with a host of errors in the Corinthian church. And one such error is that these people were not only sitting down and having communion, the Lord's Supper together, but then they'd go out the door to their, their, their friends, their neighbors' households, and they would go to pagan places, or at least be influenced to do this. And then they'd participate in their rituals and ceremonies. So Paul says, nope. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
The Lord's table displays for us that this is a way to relate to God over and above any other entity that's out there. It's a way for us showing our exclusive love for God. We relate with him intimately. It's like having a meal with a person that you know personally. Have you ever met a famous person? Have you ever met like your claim to fame? Maybe you took a picture of it with it on your phone. And like, I was right there. I was right there. That famous person was, was right by me. Has it ever happened to you? Maybe even shook the hand of a, of a famous baseball player or basketball star or movie star or politician or something like that. And you're like, wow, this was significant. I, I t- touched something very historical, a name that'll be remembered. And you might think something significant about it. But are you a friend of that person? Do you consider yourself in relationship with that person? How about if that particular famous person invited you to their home for dinner? You had a whole evening together with that person and sat there and talked about life and had a meal together. Could you then say that you had a relationship with the person? Let's take it further. What if that famous person said, open invite, You are welcome every week to come to my house for dinner right here. You see what I'm getting at? There goes from a kind of interaction with somebody to a level of relationship that's expressed because of the intimacy associated with the meal. It's called the table of the Lord. As though we're being invited to his house to eat at his table, to commune with him. The fact that we call communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, we're pointing to the fact that we display our communion with God when we take of these elements. And the last we call it communion. Same word we get community from. Participation in In fact, the New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation or communion in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When Christians take communion, it is a display of togetherness. It is not done, nor can it be done in solitude. It is decidedly corporate. This is why when your mom packs you lunch and you're getting ready to go off to school, she doesn't put a little communion wafer and and cup in there for you to have communion by yourself in the corner of the lunchroom. Because it's something to be done corporately. We do this together. By definition, what communion is, is a participation of the oneness of the body of Christ. Paul then gives us greater instruction on how to observe communion. So the question we might ask, okay, so these are the things communion ought to be thought of. This is what might go through our mind. These are the kinds of things that you should expect the pastor to say as you're getting ready to take communion. How then should it be observed? How should communion be administered? Are there any ground rules for how we ought to do this together? I knew some friends back in high school who they thought like whenever they got together at each other's house and they were uh, playing cards or board games or something like that, if they had Doritos and Mountain Dew, that's basically communion. We have to ask the question, does it matter? Does it matter how we observe communion? Can't we just do it however, whenever, with whomever we want? 
The Apostle Paul had to deal with major errors regarding communion in the Corinthian church. And like many doctrines that we hold to, one of the clearest ways to see how we're to do something is when the Bible specifically tells us how people were doing it wrong. And correction is given regarding that. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read, going to read a handful of verses here showing how some believers in the early church were doing it wrongly and trying to be corrected so that they would enter back into a means by doing it right. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 through 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? I think that's how it says it in the Greek. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's what's happening. The Corinthians are gathered together in order to have communion together. And what it sounds like happens is that when they get together, come together for their corporate gathering, corporate worship, some people are showing up early and gobbling up all the, all the bread and drinking all the wine to the point they're actually getting drunk on it. Like it's to the point that when the others show up, there's nothing left for them. Paul's saying this is not commendable. In fact, later he'll actually give specific instruction. Listen, if you're hungry, eat at home. This isn't about filling your belly. It's much more than that. Eat at home by yourself in your own household with your own family. Then come together. Then come corporately together to the church to have communion. Look what he says about what they should call this meal they're having. First verse, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Whatever you're saying you're eating, it's not the Lord's Supper because that's not how the Lord wanted it. You can call it whatever you want, but it's not the Lord's Supper. This is huge. This means that if you take communion in a way, or your church does communion in a way that is not according to God's design, it's not the Lord's Supper anymore. There's a way that we may approach this table that disqualifies it from being worship. So we let the Bible guide us. Lord, tell us how you want us to do this together. Let me give you an illustration that might help with this. Um, many of you know uh, my wife, Laura, and you might know me, and... Uh, we're very united on many things, but there's several specific things about us that are very different. Some of those things are, uh, I love meat. I think the best thing to put on a steak is another steak. When people tell me, Rich isn't eating cows bad. Hey, if God didn't want us to eat cows, he shouldn't have made them out of steak. That's how I view those animals. I love meat. I dry it out and have it, they call it jerky. I'd eat meat at almost every meal if I could. Laura doesn't really like meat. She's almost vegetarian. Not quite, but almost. Uh, for my birthday, I had a birthday recently, and she uh, made uh, some steak uh, for me to have, and I said, you've got to taste this. It's so good. And she, you should see her face. Out of love, she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> she took a bite. She's like, that's so bad. I was like, well, don't waste it. She doesn't like steak. I do. I really like that. We're different in, the, in, in other things. We like, I, I love building things. I like fixing things. I, I take a regular every other day trip to Home Depot just to make sure there's no, no tools out there that I need, you know? I like to fix things. Laura likes fixed things. 
She doesn't touch the tools. She doesn't go out in the garage. She doesn't do that stuff. She waits till I get home and do that. She just has no desire or appreciation for that whatsoever. She, she has a difference between she and I on that. I like cold weather. She likes hot weather. It gets 65, I'm sweating. If it's anything under 98, she's freezing. I would like to go to the middle of the Arctic and just play around in the snow, and she'd like to go to a beach where it's baking warm all the time. So we're, we're different. We have differences, right? And I think it's probably true of almost any two people in relationship. You'll find these things. But I want you to imagine for a moment that she had a birthday, and then the morning after the birthday, I sit down with you for coffee, and I go, I don't, I'm having a hard morning. Uh, we had a rough night last night. Laura's pretty upset with me. And you were to say, why? I, I can't figure it out. All I know is that for Laura's birthday, I got her this giant, juicy, 182-ounce steak. And nothing else. And, and then, then for the gift I gave to her, it was a, a gift card to the Home Depot for 500 bucks. And, 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 then, and then for the, the topper, the big topper, I saved money and I bought a trip for us to go to Antarctica for three weeks in camp. And she's upset with me. And I can't figure it out. What would you say? Oh, this is self-evident, isn't it? You'd say, Rich, you got her what you wanted, not what she wants. Worship is much the same way. God tells us what he wants from us in worship, what he desires from us in the way that we do things together as Christians and as we do things together as a church. God sets the way. His preference matters more than any other preference. When we come together, we should be having the Lord's Supper. You notice it's called the Lord's Supper. It's not called the Christian's Supper. You know it's called the Lord's Table, not the church's table, we're coming to his home. We're coming to his table. So Paul reminds the Corinthians what this supper is. He tries to help. They have something wrong in mind. You're not thinking rightly about this. And if you understood what it was, you wouldn't be running off into these errors. So he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul first sets this up by explaining, this is what I received from the Lord. This wasn't just like a, I got a good idea, or it seemed like it made sense at the time. This was, this is what God wanted. He is the one. The Lord instituted this supper. He's the one who told us how it was supposed to go down. I'm only delivering to you what he said. Jesus says, after he breaks the bread, this is my body. Not Doritos, not other things. Listen, we try to be really careful as a church and as Christians we should to not be legalistic about things, but sometimes the Bible gives us such clear pictures and shows us that every single participation in communion we see in the Bible is with bread. So it seems most suitable for us to do it with bread. Jesus says to do this in remembrance of me. It's a command to observe communion. It's a command for those, this is long after Jesus had died, resurrected, ascended into heaven. And Paul is utilizing those commands as a why we should continue doing it. Jesus says that the cup is the new covenant in my blood. That the cup represents the, the blood of Jesus and his covenant with his people. You know, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, call it fruit of the vine. They don't even call it wine, just fruit of the vine. No, it's almost certainly wine. But it seems appropriate why Christian churches today either have 
wine or grape juice, something from fruit of the vine. And that's how we do it here. We try to honor as closely as we can to what we think that meaning would be. And Jesus ratifies the new covenant with his blood. The cup is the symbol of the blood-bought covenant. Paul then says that we should do it as often as you drink it, as often as you drink it. Notice this. He doesn't prescribe a particular number of times in a given year or month or week that we should do it. In fact, there's, there's almost something seemingly ambiguous about it, isn't there? Whenever you do it, as often as you do it, which I think would at least imply that it should be pretty often, pretty regular. A lot of churches today do it, do it once a month. We actually started doing it once a month as a church. A lot of other churches uh, do it every week. Do you think the, as often it should be, hey, every time we get together, there's no reason to not do this. Every, every Sunday, Lord's Day gathering, we should do it. We started with once a month, felt that was fully appropriate, uh, often as you do this together. But as a church, we actually uh, adjusted our, our plans slightly when we realized that with the rotation of children's ministry volunteers specifically, who are, who are helping out with the kids, they might never have communion with their church body if we only had it once a month because they were on that particular week. And even if they shuffled that off, they might miss and go six weeks without having that with the other people of God. And so we thought it might, be, it might be really helpful for us to do it at least every other week so that we make sure that all the believers in our church have a regular, often opportunity to have it together. And we're not legalistic about it. Often as you drink it. And what does the final verse here say? That when we, when we have this together... For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming the death of Jesus. It's a proclamation of the gospel. In fact, this is why we believe that the whole Bible testifies and church history bears out that this should be believers that we offer the Lord's table to. Because it's a proclamation of something. It's an acknowledgement of what has been true about you, of what is already true. I believe, I acknowledge that Jesus died for my sins, that his body was broken, his, his blood was shed. This is a proclamation of his death until he comes. That, that means he's alive now and he's coming back. You have to believe the gospel for communion to be communion. And this is why a church is... We often give the disclaimer, say, listen, if you're, if you're not a believer, just go ahead and let the elements pass by. Do you know what? Don't, don't, work, don't take it right now. Just let that go by. It's significant for us. For you, it's, it's not even going to whet your appetite. It's, it's small. It's not going to mean anything for you, but it does mean something to us. That's why when we, have, we say, come forward, we say, if you're a believer, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, and that's your sole reliance is on what Jesus did, not on any other acts, not on any other works, you can come to the table. You don't have to be a member of this church, but you need to be a member of the universal church, a believer. Aaron had said earlier when he was baptizing John and Lydia up here that they're especially excited that today their kids get to have communion. And he didn't make this up. This has been the dominant way throughout history Christians have observed when they're trying to decide, like, who should we like invite and encourage to come to the table? And who might we say, hey, maybe you should examine yourself beforehand. The dominant way has been if a person has gotten baptized. That means they're, they're literally entering into the body of Christ in, in, in display. Not that they get saved through baptism, but they're showing the church. They're, they're publicly portraying what's already true about them, that they're a member of the universal body of Christ. And so that's what we recommend for people. 
if you're, if you're, not have, if you're having communion, haven't been baptized, you need to get baptized. You need to get baptized. In fact, in Jesus' great commission, go make disciples. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the earth, all the nations. Giving them communion? No, it says baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. The expectation is that literally as people get saved, they get baptized. And then as someone has been baptized, you come forward, you, you participate in the table. You proclaim the death of the Lord until he returns. Paul continues, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so, uh, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is where Paul gets down to the crux of it. He goes, listen, there's a way to do this. And if you do it in a wrong way, an unworthy manner, the words he uses here, then you're inviting the Lord's discipline to you. You're, you're, you're saying, God, I, I don't care about how you said I'm going to do this. I want to do it this way. And Paul was explaining in the next couple of verses, he'll make it clear. People are like getting physically sick. Some have died. That God was bringing discipline upon the early church to make it clear this was an important thing. Unworthy manner. Does Paul say that the unworthy person ought not have communion? No. And this is significant to us because none of us is worthy to take communion. We don't look at one another and say, like, well, I'm the worthy one. I can take communion. I'm not. I shouldn't take. It doesn't work that way. In fact, throughout history, there have been times when in the church, people have said only worthy people should have communion. And nobody took it. Because all of us know we're not worthy. And if you think you're worthy, you're especially not. <laughs> when we have communion, it's an acknowledgement of our lack of worth. Of course I'm not worthy to have communion. Of course I'm not worthy to participate in this. Of course I'm not worthy for someone to have died for me. But he did anyway. Because of his great love, his mercy on us, his grace given to us. When we take of communion, we're not taking because we are worthy. But we do acknowledge that, God, you want us to do this in a certain way. You, you want us to have bread and fruit of the vine. and You want us to remember. You want us to acknowledge truth. You want us to do this because it's an expression of our love for you. And so that's why we are eager to do it. Let a person examine himself. This means church life isn't a witch hunt. The elders of the church didn't inspect you when you walked in the door and checked to make sure you're doing everything right. Examine your own heart. Check your own heart. Self-examination here will help avoid judgment. For those who say, man, I, I, I know I'm sick of heart right now. I'm super angry with my believing brother, but whatever, I'm going to do communion anyway. That, that, that invites judgment on ourselves, as the Bible says right here. That we are to discern the body the body of Christ, fellow believers. The error of the Corinthians that is specifically being addressed by Paul here is not all the billions of things you and I could imagine that might be wrong about how a person would have communion. Don't pour the cup on your head. Don't stomp on the bread with your feet. I mean, we could come up with a billion wrong ways to do it. He's specifically addressing the fact that they were not thinking rightly about the body of Christ. They were sinning against one another. God really cares about how you relate to other believers. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Now, this verse is under Old Covenant. This verse is not talking explicitly about communion. But Jesus establishes a principle that you having peace with your brother or sister in Christ matters. In fact, not being at peace with a fellow family member of God can distract you from your relationship with God and right worship with him. In order to rightly commune with God, we ought to rightly commune with the people of God. This means that as a believer, you might need to delay having communion. If there's the kind of disagreement and frustration and angst directed towards other believers in your life that you don't have sufficient peace on yet. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have communion together. And as we have communion, I want to I revisit what these things are as, as we all take of these elements together. That we pray over these pieces and that as a church, we continue to acknowledge what communion means and why and how we ought to take it. If you are a believer in Jesus today, if you love the Lord and believe that you are saved by grace through faith, not of your works, you're welcome to come. If you are a believer today who has not yet been baptized, we would implore you to get baptized. But today I would invite you to come and have the Lord's Supper. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we can all stand up, and I'll give instructions for how we're going to take this. We're going to have you guys all stand. Go ahead and stand up right now where you are. I'm going to pray, and you guys can come up and grab the elements and bring them back to your seats, and then hold them there, and we'll take them all together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We want to honor your word. We want to do what you have commanded believers to do, what you commanded your church to do. And so, Lord, today we're going to take communion. And it's not just because we see it's a command and we we have this rote commitment to some ceremony. Lord, it, it would be enough if it was only ordained by you. But God, there is such great benefit for us, for us to acknowledge and remember what it is that Jesus did for us and what this represents. Father, I would would be eager to see all believers here today to come forward and and have this meal. And for those who who don't have assurance of salvation, are are concerned, thinking, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus, then maybe this would be a prompting to, to get to the bottom of that, to talk about that with somebody. But Lord, as we do this today, I pray that it would be an act of worship for you. And Lord, I am certain, I am certain that we have done things and and, and do a communion and and maybe even are going to do it today in a way that's not exactly what you might want. We want to do what you call us to do, but we acknowledge that we're imperfect. And Lord, we ask for you to to look over, overlook our, our, our impurities, our imperfections and receive like a good father does from his children, a gift that we want to offer to you and receive from you as we take of this today. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.